Well, if you turn your Bibles to Luke 9, so we've been going through this chapter. Luke has been leading us, uh, teaching us what it means to follow Christ. So, I would say if you're not following Christ yet, what's stopping you? He says, if you'll come to me, I'll receive you. If you call upon his name, he will save you. Maybe you are a believer. Most of you, many of you will be anyway. So as we go through these passages today, beginning of verse 37, I ask, do you ever get the feeling that you're making little progress? Uh, you know you're making a little progress at least, but it's sometimes hard to see. It reminds me of a, a book Chuck Swindoll wrote, I don't know, probably in the 80s, Three steps forward and two steps back as we go on the journey of grace through this life. You might be one who thinks if you're, uh, that's your experience, you might think you're the only one, that the rest of us are doing just fine, thank you. And, um, uh, we'd all be shocked if we knew what you were going through, how little progress you've made. Uh, But one of the commentators I was reading this week, most of us, for most of us, our Christian life is a series of new beginnings, starting over, throwing away. It's like the child who comes and I, teacher, I've messed up my paper. Okay, that's okay. Put it in the trash. Here's a clean piece of paper. Start all over again. Uh, Thankfully, God's grace and mercy works that way in us. So Jesus is preparing his 12 for his exodus, for his departure, as we saw last week. Uh, Chapter 9 has been a a series of short episodes. We In fact, I counted uh, last night for the first time, 13 episodes in chapter 9, little short vignette stories of uh, him, Jesus, explaining and helping the disciples to know, one, who he is. That question is answered a number of times. And then, what does it mean to be a disciple? He's teaching his disciples. He's teaching them to be teachers. He's leading them so that they might know how to be leaders when he is gone. And as he's teaching them, what Paul would write later on, the Word of God is inspired, is breathed out by God himself, and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Well, most or much of this teaching here, as the living Word of God Himself is teaching these 12. 
as a struggle. Most of Jesus' teaching or much of his teaching involves correction and reproof as they are struggling to understand what is going on in this life of their Messiah. They have misunderstandings. They have presupposed ideas, presuppositions of what their Messiah would be like, and they see some of it, but they can't get all of it. So we'll look at four little episodes today, beginning in verse 37. As he continues to uh, correct their failures, they continually, consistently get it wrong in their understanding, if they understand it all. And so Jesus will address, and I have it listed this way, four areas of discipleship in which they were either failing or struggling to get. One in the area of faith, in the area of understanding, in the area of humility, and finally a little short passage in the area of intolerance, of tolerance that they are not doing their best. They're, they're learning, but they're not learning very fast. This is the last section of the Gospel of Luke. The last is the end of the Galilean ministry, the ministry of Jesus before he takes off towards Jerusalem where his life will end and then begin again. He'll be resurrected. Look at verse 51 of chapter 9. We won't do this. We'll go to verse 50 today, but this will be where we'll start in three months. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The end of his ministry is ending as, it is go, as he is going town to town, village to village, and he is on, his, on the road to Jerusalem by determination there in verse 51. Back to verse 37. Uh, before we look at these four, we're going to see... Uh, a failure in faith in his disciples here in verse 37 through 43. Then we'll see in uh, the little paragraph of the middle of 43 to 46, their lack of understanding of what Jesus is teaching them. Then uh, a question on who is the greatest, and they will revere their lack of humility in the next little paragraph. And finally, this idea of tolerance that they are very intolerant of someone who is outside their group, uh, verses 48 to 49 and 50. Before we go there, let's pray and we will uh, begin. Father, we, we come to you, Lord, in various, various places, various stages of our Christian journey. We're not what we used to be. We thank you for that. 
But having been given all that we've been given through grace, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, we're not what we could have been. We're not what we should be. And so we thank you for the encouragement from your word, the promises that you'll complete a work that you began in us. Father, others here not yet started the journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you clear up the areas of confusion? Would you take off the blinders in the areas in which they cannot see the way? Lord, the veil that is on the, in their minds and on their hearts, would you remove by your word this morning? As Ethan shared with us earlier, how sometime last summer, you opened his eyes to the truth and gloriously saved him. Father, we ask your help because we too are faithless at times. We too are uh, lacking in understanding. We too are very, very prideful. And we too think we're, we also think we're something and not tolerant of others. Teach us, we pray. Help us to learn with the disciples as Jesus is teaching us to be teachers and leading us to be leaders and helping us to understand what it means to be a follower, a true disciple of his. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week we were up on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're coming down now. We... uh, uh, Beginning in verse 37, I'm going to read these a paragraph at a time since they're uh, split up like they are. Verse 37, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Notice how Luke puts our focus on first the crowd, then a man, then Jesus, then a man and a boy, and back on the crowd again as he if, if we were to think of a, a camera, it would be just these different shots as he goes through this story of the boy with the unclean spirit. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold... A spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. 
But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. And we'll stop at that sentence and add the other sentence in the next uh, episode. So this ever-present crowd is there as they come down off the mountain, coming down from the majesty uh, of the mountain into, if you will, the misery of the valley, the, the daily life, uh, into the, one said, yearning, struggling, unbelieving world of men. But whether it's on the mountaintop with Peter and John and uh, James, or it's in the valley with a man whose son is uh, overtaken by this evil spirit, this demonic spirit, in both situations, the glory of the Lord shines bright. Uh, So uh, we have the crowd in verse 37, then in verse 38, he kind of narrows down, and behold, there's that word behold, where it's pay attention here, look at this. He focuses our attention to the man from the crowd who cries out, teacher, I'm begging you, please help me with my uh, son, my only son. And then verse 39, he describes his son's affliction. The spirit seizes him. He suddenly cries out, convulsions, foaming at the mouth. It shatters him. It will hardly uh, leave him. And then the picture turns again. Verse 40. I begged your disciples to cast it out. And then this phrase, can you imagine to the disciple? As the camera kind of turns maybe to these 12 guys over here, you know, the crowd, then to the man, then kind of these 12. I begged them, but they could not. Hmm. Embarrassed questioning themselves, saddened. Mark chapter 9, it's a little more expansive. Mark uh, uh, expands this story a little bit more to where when Jesus says, bring the boy here in the, in the next verse, O faithless, verse 41, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you to bear, and to be with you and bear with you, bring your son here. And Mark says that as the son comes and he's thrown down, Jesus has a conversation with the father. How long has this been going on? Well, since he was, since childhood, it's hard to know age-wise there, but he's still a child. But since his childhood, it was at least in the past, this has been going on a while. And the father says to Jesus, I beg you, your disciples couldn't do it, but if you can, heal my boy. And Jesus says, if I can. He says, all things are possible if you have faith. 
And this is where the father says, you know the phrase. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. So Mark records that. Luke has a more concise, oh, faithless and twisted generation. Bring your son here. And Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit, heals the boy, and gives him back to his father. So Jesus now is the focus, and he turns the chaos of the situation into a calm. He restores the order in, this, in the life of this father and in his son. If Jesus is ever frustrated, it's here. You know, oh, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. Now, he's not frustrated with dad. The father's belief, faith is intact, at least somewhat, as best he can. It's not with the boy. The boy's afflicted by a demon or evil spirit. It's not the crowd. They're just watching. If he's frustrated at all, it's with the twelve. Notice, notice uh, verse 42. He was coming, while he was coming, the demon threw himself to the ground. By the way, Luke, Mark says that as he's coming, the evil spirit sees him. And then he throws the boy down in convulsions. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, and healed the boy. So his disciples are struggling with their faith. Jesus heals the boy. Remember in the boat, Jesus help us, we're all going to die, and you're just going to sleep. Jesus said, where's your faith? I skipped, we skipped the uh, feeding of the 5,000. We'll look at that next week in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. Uh, in, in the Lord's Supper, they, uh, Jesus uh, says, uh, uh, let's feed these folks. And uh, we can't. Just send them away, Jesus. We can't do that. They just have such little faith. They're given the power. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. They've been given the power to do this. They've been given what was needed to help the situation of the father and the son. Verse 6. Of nine. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They started off good. Here they can't. Don't know why, but it seems to be a lack of faith. They're not trusting God. And so Jesus' compassion toward the man, the boy, bring the son here. The father's testimony is proven true. The father says what the spirit does to him. He's bringing the boy, and on the way, bringing the boy, the evil spirit sees Jesus, and he does exactly what the father said that he does. And Jesus rebukes it, heals the boy, and then in verse 42, he gives him back, gives the father his son back. Just like when he raised the widow's son at Nain, 
He raised the widow's son and gives the son back to the mother. Raises Jairus' daughter who had died, gives her back to the family and restores the calm, restores the uh, uh, chaos that was in that family into calmness. The disciples' failure of faith, let me ask you, does that encourage you? That this, this dad begged the disciples to help him with his son. When Jesus' disciples were struggling with their faith, the father still came to Christ. He still came to Christ. That's what happens here, right? Uh, when we, Jesus' disciples, struggle as we walk through the Christian life, are you encouraged that the Lord Jesus will bring his own to himself in spite of us? He desires to use his disciples. He gave them the power to do it. They were faithless, but the Father didn't turn away. He came to Christ anyway. Their faithlessness didn't turn the Father away. Their faith faltered, but their Savior is able. When our faith falters, our God is able. They lack compassion. Jesus is truly compassionate. So people come to Christ because of God's sovereign grace, His amazing grace, not because our witness is so eloquent and not because our lives are so um, magnanimous. You know, we could have all that and or get it all wrong. People will still come to Him. But when the devil discourages you in your Christian walk, tell you you might as well give up. He has a ploy, you know. His ploy is, look, you're doing your best. One sin won't matter. Go ahead and do it. Don't worry. It's one little sin. You can confess it later. And as soon as you do it, he says, there you go, you failed. Forget it. You might as well give up. When you're discouraged, keep at it. God is in control. God is governing. He is accomplishing his purposes. Even when we fail, he reaches his own. And he does what he's determined to do from all eternity. If you feel like your life's getting out of control, you're losing your grip, uh, uh, remember that the Lord Jesus can make all things calm. In fact, he alone can make all things right. He can bring everything under control. Last verse, verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. The majesty of God in Christ Jesus. 
as this demon is cast away. And Mark, as Mark makes sure we understand that he never will have a convulsion again. No more fits. He is completely and permanently healed from this affliction. So, they were all astonished at the majesty of God. Keep going in verse 43. But while they were marveling and everything, at everything he was doing, Jesus begins to talk to his disciples. And so we come to this second episode, a failure in understanding. This is the second time that Jesus will have said this to his disciples. Verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And in verse 48, we've got to think hard about verse 48. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Second time, tells them of his passion. His, his, uh, he's going to Jerusalem. His evil men are going to capture him. They're going to crucify him. He's going to be buried. He's going to be raised again. And they don't understand these words. But he begins as he teaches them this, uh, let these words sink in. That's a, 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 not, a, uh, not the only place this word is used, but it's a word where he says, let these words find uh, a particular place. Place, the, the responsibility is on the disciples, place these words in a particular place. Let them sink in. Plant these words in your ears, he says. And Jesus trying to hammer home this truth once again made me think of J.L. Not our J.L. J.L. in Judges as he hammers the tent peg through the temple of Sisera, the evil king. Jesus is trying to hammer these truths into the ears and into the minds of his disciples. What he had said previously, after Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Yes, you got it, Peter. Flesh and blood hasn't given you that. By the way, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Peter takes him on the side and says, no way. Sorry about that, Jesus. That's not going to happen. Maybe your plan, but we're not going to let that happen. Here they just can't understand it is all Luke records for us. They can't put it together. The religious leaders can't put it together. This twisted generation that Jesus is speaking to had the wrong notion of their Messiah. He's healing the sick. They knew their Messiah would do that. He's walking on the water, calming the waves, casting out evil spirits. Yes, that's very messianic. This is like the man who we are looking for. the one who enjoys the glory and the exaltation 
but they just can't quite get this impending doom that he keeps talking about. Um, they could understand how powerful Jesus was. I mean, that he would, he can vanquish the enemies. He can drive the Roman authorities out. He can establish his kingdom. But they can't understand how this powerful, magnificent Savior, Jesus, Messiah, they can't understand why he keeps talking about being handed over to wicked men. He can stop that. Crucified? That's a curse. He can't be our Messiah and be crucified. And then after three days rise from the dead, that's... uh, But they cannot get that the Christ of God, he's been declared the Christ of God by Peter and Jesus... uh, applauds that that name that Peter gives him, they just can't get that he's going to have to suffer and die. That's so far removed from their thinking, and now it's concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, so they might not grasp it. I mean, we go all the way to the garden, right? And Peter hadn't gotten it yet. They come to arrest him. What does Peter do? He draws his sword and takes a whack at the guy's neck. He kind of does it. You know, he gets his ear. Peter hadn't gotten it yet. Peter, put up your sword. Well, it's concealed. What does that mean? Do you, did you... They did not understand this saying. Jesus is telling them. They don't understand it. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Did Jesus tell them and yet prevent them from understanding? Uh, And it seems to me there's one of two choices. You can, I, I, I guess there's variations of either they couldn't grasp this truth because Jesus kept them from getting it uh, because he knew they couldn't really face the reality the disappointment that would be more harmful than helpful for them to get the big picture that's one option that a number of my commentators left me with for their own good Jesus told them, but then he, do do you like that option? I don't. Um, Another option is that the horror or the incongruency of what Jesus is saying closes their minds to the truth of what Jesus is trying to teach them. I don't know where the adage comes from. You know, there's none so blind as those who will not see. They can't put the picture together of the future, the suffering and dying Christ. They can't understand it because of their preconceived notions of what their Messiah was going to be like. Dennis prayed us through Isaiah 53. The suffering servant of Jesus, 
No, to the Jewish mind, we've already done that. Isaiah, uh, uh, as God speaks through Isaiah, he says, my, you are my servant, Israel. And for them, Isaiah 53 became a figurative explanation of what happened to them as a nation as they carried off into Assyria and eventually into Babylon. They had suffered already. Their Messiah was going to come as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And because they rejected Isaiah 53, having to do anything, the suffering servant with them, with their Messiah, their minds were closed to it and they could not put these two things together. And Jesus' coming suffering was his primary earthly mission. We've got 15 more chapters to go of his mission to die for the sins of his people as the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He has to be, he was to be a suffering Messiah. This is his mission. And the disciples must learn that to carry on in the second as he's gone, as the church is being built, these disciples. And then notice, uh, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They don't have James yet telling them, most likely they may have, but they probably don't have James telling them, look, if you need wisdom, ask God. He'll give to you uh, profusely. They're afraid to ask. They're afraid to go to Jesus. Maybe they're tired of disappointing him and they know when they say, we don't understand this, Jesus. He says, again, once again. Maybe they, I don't know why it is, but they would not ask him about why they couldn't understand it. Um. Just thinking about these disciples. Do do you understand everything? Of course not. Will we ever, when we see him face to face, we'll understand everything we need to know. We have everything we need to know today. Some of it's hard to understand. We'll never understand everything. Often some are truly converted. They trust in Christ. They repent of their sins, but their minds don't. It was like me. I was, when I was converted, I had zero Bible knowledge. Ethan grew up in church. Unfortunately, Ethan knew the catechism probably backwards and forwards. He'd heard the gospel preached every Sunday as he's sitting here in church. And that gospel will never depart from him. He can't get away from it. I knew nothing. I'm sure people, when I said things after I was saved with no knowledge at all, they said, your mind hadn't caught up yet, you know? Uh, 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 I was truly saved, but I didn't know much. I was zealous. That happens to people. Their hearts are changed, but they don't know much of the word. They knew enough to cry out to Christ for salvation. But when you hear them, you realize they don't really 
understand. The Christian life is a, 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 a faith-seeking understanding. And it's for all of us. I was talking to someone this week, trying to answer, asking me to help him answer the questions of someone who was asking him question after question, and every question he would answer, they would have another question. Maybe you're uh, waiting to have all of your questions answered before you will profess the faith in Jesus Christ. Well, it won't happen. You can come to Christ and all your questions aren't answered, much less before you come to Christ. The disciples should not have been afraid to ask because the Lord gives generously to all who ask without fault, without faulting. So there's their failure in understanding. Verse 46, one more, uh, a third one. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the, the one who is great. And I just, this is a failure in humility. Um, uh, having just spoken about his impending death, his arrest, his death, these apostles are oblivious to that. They don't understand it. And they're absorbed in their own prestige and their place in the kingdom. Who's the greatest? This could have been something uh, that began with, hey, Peter, John, and James, how come you got to go up on the mountain and we didn't? Which one of us are going to be greater? They're absorbed with their own self-worth Let's go ask Jesus. (laughs) But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, they they didn't get a chance to ask him. He knew already. They didn't need to ask him. He knew what they were doing, what they were talking about, what they were thinking about. And so instead of responding in frustration again, if they came and asked him, Jesus just puts a little boy or, I'm sorry, a child, maybe a little girl, but he puts this child sit, uh, right next to him, gives him a visual aid, and says, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. If you receive me, you receive the one who sent me, my father, and the least among us is the greatest of all. Uh, a principle of interpretation, one of the reasons you would want to go to the Bible Institute occasionally. One of principle of, insti- of interpretation is we need to first know what would the passage mean to them in the first century, right? And then we interpret it and apply it into our 21st century situation. Um, we shouldn't be too hard on the disciples Uh, What would it mean in Jesus' day? Well, the first century was very status conscious, supremely status 
conscious. Um, and we don't want to impose 21st century thinking into a first century context. So with, we want to understand the status of a child in the first century uh, to begin with. Otherwise, what we would assume, Jesus sits this little boy up here, so uh, to make mom and dad proud that he gets to sit by the teacher and maybe some pictures could be taken or something like that. That would be kind of how we would do that, right? I mean, we do it with Santa Claus. We do it with other people, uh, other famous people, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, that would be a 21st century view of the, Jesus sitting the child by him. Um, but in the first century, by the way, this is not a sermon to bring children into the church at a very, very young age, which you'll, you can find those sermons on the internet if you like. But what Jesus is doing is he is dislodging uh, some of the thinking of honor and status of the day, both in the contemporary culture and in his disciples' mind. In Roman culture, you only extended hospitality to someone who was equal to you or greater than you in their status in the society. Okay? And so Jesus is turning that upside down on its ear. Because in the Roman culture, children were the bottom of the ladder. And he's welcoming that child to sit next to him as a uh, living illustration. The children may be asked to wait on the parents. The children uh, are, are commanded, of course, and they still are commanded to honor their parents. But the children would never receive an honorable place in the society. And so this child represents that. Jesus is turning their um, traditions upside down. He's teaching them about humility. The, so the child sat beside him. The people would immediately know that he represented the lowest in society. And so what Jesus is encouraging the disciples, whoever else is there, and you and me, us, is to welcome the marginalized and insignificant people of this world. James says it, right? You see someone with a, with a fancy ring, expensive ring, nice clothes. You know there's somebody. Don't give them the front seat. And if you can give honor to this child, the lowest of society, you're really understanding now the nature of the kingdom of God. Uh, there are no nobodies among Jesus' disciples and people. And that is a, Jesus is making a first century co corrective, and we need that corrective here. Uh, one, uh, uh, three wrong motives for Christian service, just to make a short point. A desire for prestige. Prestige. 
uh, 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 there was a story, a doctor in the rural areas uh, before modern time, I don't, I, I don't know when, but he's telling the story of every, he, 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 had, he had this area to cover as the primary doctor. And uh, there was a nurse who always beat him to the scene. The nurse was the first call, and this nurse would always be there first before he got there for the emergency situations, a kind of a uh, horse and buggy EMT service, you know, kind of a thing where she did the triage and the doctor got there and dealt with the situation. And there, after a long uh, night together, he asked this nurse, he says, she made a paltry salary, uh, she, the people didn't pay her much. He said, look, you do so much for these people. Why don't you charge more? God knows you're worth it. And her response was, if God knows, that's all I need. So a first idea, wrong motive for Christian service, the desire for prestige. Uh, second is a desire for place. You know, if you're given a, a duty at the church, if you're given an office at the church, uh, don't look at it as an honor. Look at it as a responsibility. Don't serve uh, in order to get a position. to get recognition. Third idea, don't serve for prestige, don't serve for place, and don't desire for prominence. And, and the commentator that I was reading that talked about this is, you know, I'll serve if everyone knows I'm serving. I'll give as long as you're grateful. Look, Jesus taught, don't let your left hand know what the right hand is doing. And he teaches us to serve in a way that honors the least of the people. That's what he's trying to teach the disciples there. And then the last one, John answered, verse 48, 49, I'm sorry. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Here is a failure in tolerance. Uh, this exorcist, whoever he is, the irony is this man with less Access to the Lord Jesus is doing, he had enough faith to do what the disciples who walked with Jesus every day and had been given the power to do, couldn't do. Um, we don't know anything about this man, but we do know John was being, um, I don't know, what do we want to call it, territorial. He was being... Uh, 
uh, stimulated by jealousy, stimulated by pride, selfishness. And, and again, we're not told why John is doing that. In one sense, uh, this, in one sense, he's trying to protect the truth, right? But in another sense, he's thinking truth resides only in 12 and Jesus. Uh, he just taught them to honor those with no status at all faced with their ineffectiveness being confronted by the effectiveness of this other person instead of encouraging I'm glad you're doing this in Jesus name they refused to tolerate his actions he didn't share their status status they assumed upon themselves he didn't enjoy what they enjoyed that availability and fellowship with Jesus so he says, stop, don't do what you're doing. Leon Morris says, a man opposing demons in Jesus' name should be welcome, not stopped. He's on the right side. Uh, Jesus is not saying, you know, we need to uh, welcome everybody for the sake of unity uh, at the expense of truth. He's not saying that at all. But Jesus knew the situation. He knew what was in John's heart for sure. Uh, John Wesley says Jesus was trying to prevent a narrow spirit, a party zeal, that, that miserable bigotry which makes us so unready to believe there's any work of God but that which takes place among ourselves. Luther sort of had this uh, problem of uh, miserable bigotry at the when he was debating, he was trying to bring, he had good intentions of bringing the reformers together on some points that they were at odds. And so he and Zwingli, the Germans and the Swiss reformers came together in a conference to deal with the differences in the Lord's Supper. Zwingli and Luther thought Christ's presence was in the supper, but they differed in how that happened at the observance of the Lord's Supper. And so they had this debate, if you will, a, a discussion, trying to bring the parties together. And Luther said, his presence is physical. He said, this is my body. And Zwingli said, no, his presence is a spiritual presence. Jesus also said, I am the door. I take it literally just like you do, Luther, except I don't take it literalistically. It's a figure of speech. This is my body. Jesus said, I'm a vine. He wasn't a tree or a plant growing. And they couldn't get together in this Marburg colloquy. And so Luther played the part of John here. In fact, he questioned Zwingli's uh, Christianity altogether. If you don't agree with us on every point, you're not really a Christian or you're not really of Christ. And Jesus says, you have none of that. Don't stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Tolerance is not a bad word. Tolerance for the sake of unity apart from truth is bad. 
As long as someone's maintaining the essentials, the main things, the plain things of Scripture, he's not for us. Jesus says he's against us. Let him be. Don't stop him. You know, do we get everything right here? No. The miserable bigotry is if you want to see God at work, follow me. Come here where we are. Believe like us about all things. No, these last two segments here, uh, Jesus is seeking to protect against pride, teaching humility, and reminding us Jesus doesn't need any hot shots. He's the king of glory. And he is able to do with us what we can't do on our own. I believe Ethan said that this morning also. Trust in the Lord Jesus, whatever your situation. Hang on to the truth of God's word. Ask God for great faith. Ask God to give you wisdom to understand that which you are struggling to understand. Ask Him to kill your pride. And that will have to be a daily prayer. And appreciate those who are working for the gospel, who may not quite believe like you believe. If they're working with the truth of the gospel in Jesus' name. That's what Jesus taught, try, is teaching his disciples and what he's trying to teach us today. Let's get it, okay? Father, we do thank you. We thank you for this uh, section of Scripture how it is that you've inspired Luke to put together Jesus' teaching and training of these 12 men. And Lord, how that first century situation, the truth that was taught, the truth that is revealed, is so, so, Helpful to us today as we seek to follow Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand. We'll be dismissed with a benediction. Um, Andy told, said where the classes will be. Ephesians will be here. Life 101 is in the fellowship hall, the new members class is down the hallway in the classroom on your left. So the benediction that we have, Acts 20, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The Lord bless you and keep you. Amen.